please join me in welcoming to the Distinctive Voices podium, Dr. Jill McDermott. Hello. <laughs> so picture this. You've just landed on the seafloor, and you're in a titanium sphere that's about six feet in diameter. And up above you, you've got about a mile and a half of ocean pressing down. And that sphere, luckily for you, is about three inches thick. And you're not alone. It's not very big, but you're not alone. There's another scientist. He's right over here. And there's a pilot. He's right here. And without saying anything, your pilot turns off the lights. So what do you see? You see nothing. <laughs> it's the blackest black you're ever going to see. And that's because there's no light in a vast majority of the ocean, including at the seafloor, not a single photon. And so after a moment, your pilot turns the lights back on, the submarine rotates to the left, and that is how my career started. So my name is Jill McDermott. I'm an assistant professor at Lehigh University, and I'm a deep sea oceanographer. And I tricked you a little by saying, my talk is called The Deep Sea Hunt for Evidence of Dark Life. But in fact, I'm a geochemist, not a biologist. I know. <laughs> I'm sorry. <laughs> I hope you'll stay. <laughs> I hope you'll stay. And I want to describe to you some of the ways we can use chemistry to understand what the very early Earth might have been like, and also to understand how that deep biosphere on our own modern planet can be sustained. So why do we explore? We live on planet ocean. So the deep ocean covers greater than 70% of Earth's surface. We have explored less than 5% of it. And yet the ocean is very, very important. It drives weather. It regulates climate. And organisms in the ocean are generating 50% of the oxygen you're breathing. So the ocean ultimately supports all living organisms on Earth. And yet, we have explored a vast minority of the ocean. And so why? Why is this? And this is mostly because it's very technologically challenging. So the, the analogy, of course, is, is to explore space, right? So when you have a spacecraft, that spacecraft has to deal with things like space debris, radiation. Deep ocean also has challenges. You have extremely high pressures. You have zero lighting. And you have communication challenges. You can't use radio waves, for example. And so how do you relay information back up to the surface? And I'm also an explorer, so I wanted to talk a little about the difference between exploration versus what I'm calling here deductive science, or what you might also call pure science. And so in deductive science, you have an explicit goal of eventually being able to predict patterns and processes that generate those patterns. And you do that through the testing of hypotheses that you're, you're able to write. And you can compare that with exploration, in which you're, you're going in a, a totally unknown environment where you lack almost all of the knowledge about a subject. And so there's actually a systematic way you can do this. And I'm going to describe some of this today in the deep sea um, so that you can gather information and, and be able to bring that through toward eventually making predictions. And I think deep sea oceanographers are very familiar with mixing deductive science with exploration, because in many cases, uh, you need to be able to do both. And 
um, I think exploration has an inherent um, charm, right? It inspires us. But I think more importantly, it gives us the, the raw material to be able to make new discoveries. And, and that enables us to gain knowledge about Earth life and possibly uh, these processes on other planets and planetary bodies. And so I study this unique environment. These are deep sea hydrothermal systems. Um, this particular hydrothermal system is found on the Galapagos Spreading Center. It's just north of the Galapagos hotspot. And so you can see a few things here. Um, this is seawater right down here. These are the really hot um, vents here are smoking. They're generating black smoke, which is actually minerals precipitating as those fluids are quenched by seawater. And so if you were in the submarine here and you were to, to uh, measure the temperature in this vent, you would get a temperature something around 350 to 400 degrees Celsius which is extremely hot. That would melt lead if you're at the surface of the Earth. And the reason it can get so hot is because of the hydrostatic pressure that's pressing down. And this changes the boiling point of water. And so, we, well, it's, it's called phase separation in the deep ocean because you don't actually form a gas phase. You would form two liquid phases. But this, we think, is the ultimate control on, on the maximum temperature that these fluids can reach. And so this is the very, very hot fluid here. And if you keep going and look around the bases of these structures, you can see another kind of environment. And this might look familiar. These are deep sea tube worm communities. This is also on the, west, uh, the Eastern Galapagos Spreading Center in a different location. Um, and this is where vents were first discovered in 1977. And so this was a huge shock. It immediately revolutionized biology because this cruise actually had um, geologists on board. Nobody was expecting to find biology of this nature at the seafloor. And so this biology is actually, it's called chemosynthesis, and that means it's completely reliant on the chemical energy gradient between these hot shimmering fluids and seawater. There's, there's chemical energy to be gained, and so these two worms actually, if you cut them open, they have something called a trophosome, which is filled by, with microbial communities. And these microbes are the primary producers. So in, on, on the surface of the planet, you could think about crap, uh, cows eating grass. In this system, the grass are the microbes, and then the larger organisms are feeding off microbes. Microbes themselves, rather than rely on the sun's energy, they're relying on chemical energy. And so as a chemist, I'm very interested in that chemical energy. How is it getting to the seafloor? What are the processes creating these fluids and how does that support life? How does that make the environment habitable? And so these hydrothermal systems are formed along mid-ocean ridges. So this is places where the, the, the tectonic plates are, are spreading apart. There's a warm place in the mantle, and there's heat upwelling. And this drives volcanism. And because there's volcanism there and spreading, you also have fracturing of the rock at the seafloor. Wherever you have fractures, you have seawater percolating down through those fractures. As it gets closer and closer to the heat source, it's, it's getting hotter and hotter. And as it gets hotter, it exchanges chemically with the rock that it's circulating through. And so this transforms the chemistry of seawater into the chemistry of these kinds of black smoker systems, which is shown right here. And these are very important. Um, you can imagine that this is an important delivery system for chemicals into the ocean and also out of the ocean. 
So they, they modulate seawater chemistry. They also form valuable mineral deposits. So this, this deposit forming here is the modern day analog for an ore deposit that you would now mine for copper or zinc, for example. Uh, they're also a potential origin of life environment. And so it's thought that hydrothermal vents may be one of the environments that gave rise to the earliest life. And so people that study this today, um, they look at DNA from, from organisms still alive today. And this data shows that many of the oldest lineages that we can trace back are, are the organisms that we find within these hydrothermal environments. They're called thermophiles. Thermophile means heat loving. And so the environments I'm going to discuss today are among one of our best modern analogs to understand the early vent systems that may have given rise to life like this. And what's also very important is that they support biological communities in the modern environment. And so what you can't see in this picture are all of the thriving microbes that are living in the walls of this chimney structure. And this is a good thing, but it's also a challenge. Because if you're a chemist like me, and you're looking for organic chemistry, you need to be able to discern whether the chemicals in the environment are produced through life processes, or because life is there, or whether they can be generated in the absence of life, just through, through chemical processes in this environment. So we've been talking about the origin of life. I wanted to give you a brief introduction to how Earth, ocean, and life have co-evolved. So starting here with the age of the Earth, 4.6 billion years ago, and the Jack Hill zircon are the oldest terrestrial materials that have been found so far. They're detrital grains, so they're not an entire rock, and they were found in Western Australia. And they clock in around 4, 4 to 4.4 billion years. The oldest rock is the Acasta gneiss, a little bit younger than this. And then a very important uh, to this story is the late heavy bombardment. And so this was when there was a disproportionately large number of asteroids that were hitting uh, the inner solar system, and that included Earth. And so at some point between when that happened and uh, around you know, 3 billion years, Earth went from a lifeless planet to a life planet. And the exact timing of the origin of life is probably constrained by the cooling of Earth's crust. And so prior to about 4 billion years ago, 4 to 3.8 billion years ago, the early Earth had so much heat available that you couldn't have um, sustained liquid oceans. And so the very first oceans formed around here, around 4 to 3.8 billion years ago. And interestingly, this seems to coincide with some of our earliest evidence for life on our planet. And this is, of course, a controversial topic. This is a hard thing to study. Uh, and so some of the earliest fossils are found in rocks, of course. There's also isotopic evidence, which may support very early life. And then we know that by this time here, we had eukaryotic cells, so cells with a nucleus. And then um, uh, there was a long period here when the Earth's atmosphere changed dramatically. So photosynthesis kicked in. Now we have oxygen. Then there's a really long period where, according to this, nothing happens, right? And then we have hard-shelled animals. We have fossils preserved in the system. Then we have the dinosaurs. And finally, we have us. Very, very short amount of time. But more importantly, we also have modern hydrothermal vents. So let's get back to that. So the questions that motivate me are, are fairly simple. The first one is, how are abiotic organic compounds formed within these deep sea hydrothermal vents? 
Are there any reactions happening without life that are generating the kinds of molecules that would be the first step toward a primitive metabolism or the first step toward forming something more complex like an amino acid? And then the second question is, in an environment that's saturated with life, how can I use chemistry to reveal the presence of microbiological life living below the seafloor that we can't access directly? So these organic molecules can be generated and consumed by three main types of processes. The first one is metabolic uptake and production. So this would be active chemosynthetic microbes that are taking in certain chemicals and releasing other ones. Uh, and one example of those are methanogens. So they, they generate, um, they, oops, sorry. Here. The methanogens combine uh, carbon dioxide, which is the dominant form of carbon in our oceans, with hydrogen, and they can form methane, which of course is an organic molecule. And so if there are active viable methanogens, they could be a source of methane. If, on the other hand, you can cook this organic matter and thermally degrade it with heat, then you could also generate uh, organic molecules. This, of course, is also tied to life being there, right? So this life is either living currently or it was once living. So these are not purely chemical. The third one is the purely chemical case where you can have an abiotic transformation of inorganic carbon to organic carbon. And so let's take a look at how that might be happening within the system. And these hydrothermal systems are particularly interesting because of the presence of this mineral. This is called olivine. And in the presence of water, olivine is unstable. So the iron-rich parts of olivine are oxidized by water. They form this suite of minerals. This is called uh, serpentine or serpent serpentinizing mineral suite. This is just one of many reactions. But the really important thing is that they form free hydrogen, H2, in solution. And this hydrogen is very important because hydrogen can combine with carbon dioxide and form organic compounds. So like I said, carbon dioxide is the most abundant form of carbon in our, our oceans today. And this is because the oceans are very oxidizing. And so carbon bonds with oxygen and forms CO2. Hydrogen is a great fuel. And it's a great fuel for microbes. Hydrogen is basically the best thing you can find if you're a microbe. Um, and then methane, of course, is a component of natural gas. And then we're all familiar with water. That's actually the seawater that's circulating. And so at these deep sea hydrothermal systems, the starting fluid is seawater. This is a cross section drawn through the crust. So you have seawater percolating down through these cracks. As it percolates down, this reaction starts to occur. So you're building up free hydrogen in the presence of carbon dioxide, which came from the seawater. And so along the way, it seems that some of that carbon dioxide is being transformed into methane. So when I go out there and I collect a sample where this vent fluid is coming out, we observe very high amounts of methane in certain systems. So it seems very likely that this reaction could have something to do with it because you're at the right kinds of temperatures to, to favor the formation of methane. So this reaction should move in this direction. But what we don't know is where in the system is this actually happening? And so the prevailing theory about this was that 
This was actually an active process that happened as the fluid is moving through the crust, as it's building up hydrogen. The other place you can get methane is from direct injection, um, from degassing of the, the volcano itself. And you can also leach methane and other organics from the rock. Uh, so that's a third potential pathway. And so what I'm going to show you today is that this prevailing paradigm cannot be the case in a very particular system. And this might give us insight into many other systems across the planet. Okay, so this map shows, as of 2013, all the vent sites that have been discovered and confirmed, either by diving on them in a submersible or by detecting chemical anomalies in the water column. So the blue symbols here show all of the vents or vent locations where we had found um, active venting prior to 2000. And then all of the red symbols show all of the active vents discovered after 2000. So you can see a couple things here. We've made good progress. Uh, we're continuing to explore. But this is also somewhat biased because we're finding the most vents in the locations that are easiest to get to. So you'll also see there's some interesting red circles up here on our northernmost hydrothermal system. These have all been very recently discovered. There's also some down here by Antarctica. And there's probably many, many more awaiting to be discovered. And so all of these black lines on here, I should have mentioned, these are ridge spreading centers, or mid-ocean ridges. And they encircle the globe. There's over 60,000 kilometers of mid-ocean ridge crust. And if you look at the whole thing, on average, there's one vent every 100 kilometers. So my job isn't easy, right? <laughs> and so one thing that was noticed is that most of the ocean is formed of uh, the seafloor is made up of one type of rock, and that's called basalt. And so if you look at a basalt-hosted vent over here in the Atlantic Ocean, and you compare that with a basalt-hosted vent in the Pacific Ocean, and you have a similar kind of depth, so you have a similar kind of temperature, because it's because the temperature was related to pressure, remember, then you're going to have some similarities in chemistry throughout the whole ocean because it's all got the same conditions or similar conditions. So why would you keep exploring? Why keep going? And the answer to that is we've discovered new systems within the last few years that have higher compositional variety in the fluids that are coming out. And this is because they're called ultramafic systems. And these types of rocks are formed deeper in Earth's crust, and they have a higher component of olivine. And so these fluids can generate more hydrogen. And this can result in very interesting chemistry. So for example, this is rainbow. This is a really hot system. Uh, so you can see that based on the smoke here. Um, we have really high hydrogen in solution and also high methane. And then this is Lost City, another really famous hydrothermal system. Um, this one has a different pH. It's very alkaline and low in metals. You can see the fluids are clear. But it shares these, uh, this high hydrogen and high methane. And so what I want to take you to today, uh, this is the olivine. So that was from the serpentinizing reaction. So I want to take you to two different locations in the ocean today. The Mid-Cayman Rise in the Caribbean Sea, and then the Gackle Ridge up in the Arctic. So in 2010, a group of colleagues and I discovered two new hydrothermal fields along the Mid-Cayman Rise Spreading Center. And this was a good project because this ridge is approximately 100 kilometers long, right? So how many vents are there going to be? At least one, right? <laughs> so when I started out, I was 
I was present for the exploration phase of this mission. So this is the, the whole ridge gridded out. Every dot on here is a different toe done by a ship of this kind of sensor. This is called a conductivity temperature depth rosette, CTD. And it measures a variety of different chemical and physical features in the ocean. And it also has this, this array of water bottles. And so as we make these measurements through the water column, you can detect those particles, for example. And you can also detect chemical anomalies that can help you trace where the seafloor location of that venting is. So this is a really important tool. The other very important tool is high-resolution seafloor mapping. So this is a, a map made by the, the multi-beam system on the ship, which is four times higher resolution than anything we had before, before we actually get out to this location. And that's because satellite altimetry doesn't do as well as, as when you're actually present there with a ship. You get much better resolution. So you can pick out really interesting looking uh, geologic features that can inform where to go and where to look. So getting back to this grid, all the dots on here, if you've ever played Battleship, does anyone do that anymore? <laughs> if you've ever played Battleship, all the black dots are misses. That was plain old seawater. And then this whole array took about a month to make. All the colored dots were good days. These are hits. And so, and the different colors correspond to different types of chemical anomalies. So we knew we had more than one type of system. We had a particle-rich system here and a clear system here. So we went on to discover two fields, the Picard vent field, which is now Earth's deepest hydrothermal field, and Von Damme vent field, which is up on this undersea mountain. So then it was time for phase two of exploration. So two years later, we went out on a different ship using the ROV Jason. This is a remotely operated submarine. And in my lab, I use these kinds of samplers. This is a, an isobaric gas type sampler. And isobaric means one pressure. So this enables me to collect a fluid at seafloor pressure and take it up to the ship without changing its pressure. And so all of the dissolved gases that are present will remain there. And so I can study the gas geochemistry, the organic chemistry, and the inorganic chemistry all in the same sample. That's why it's done. And this is made out of titanium, uh, which is relatively inert, and it won't melt. And we can make some hypotheses about this environment based on its geologic location. Picard should be very hot because it's very deep, right? So the boiling point of water would be quite high in the system. Von Damme is on this, this underwater mountain that's called an oceanic core complex. And this, this spreading ridge is very slow spreading. And because it's so slow, there's only a volcanic eruption approximately once every 10,000 years, right? Okay, so we didn't see that. <laughs> but you have to still accommodate the plate motion along that spreading center. And so you do that through the formation of faults, very deep cracks in the ocean crust. And these faults are shown here in cross-section. And these exhume rocks that are formed deeper within the, the lower crust and the upper mantle that are very rich in the mineral olivine. And so this is a time series. This is after those rocks have come up along the detachment fault. They're now exposed at the seafloor where they can interact with water and form a serpentinizing hydrothermal system. And so we expected this system to be serpentinizing. So let's look at Von Damme first. This is a zoomed in map looking at the Von Damme hydrothermal field. There is one very hot 
um, area, which is a maximum temperature of 226 degrees. This is it right here, the, the approximate area. And you could see these fluids look very different from that black smoker system I showed you at the beginning of the talk. And that's because they're lower temperature. So they've never reached a high enough temperature to leach so many metals out of the rock. And you can also see that there's uh, a vibrant biological community living in this environment, and it's actually hard to see the geology because you're reaching through swarms of shrimp. Um, and these shrimp are only found in the Atlantic Ocean. They're actually these kinds of really shrimpy areas. We don't see this in the Pacific. So there's some interesting um, geographical boundaries to the biology in these environments. All right. So getting into some of the chemistry here, Getting back to this question, how are abiotic organic compounds formed? Well, sure enough, the Von Dam system was very high hydrogen. It actually beat these other two systems. Um, but it has a similar kind of chemical potential to form methane. And indeed, it also has methane, very similar across the three systems here. A lot of the other chemistry is different, uh, but I'm not going to focus on that today. I'm going to talk about this similarity because it might be able to tell us something very meaningful that cross-cuts through all of these systems. Okay, so this is probably the hardest slide, but a very important one to understand. So I'm getting back to this reaction that I showed you at the beginning. This is when you combine carbon dioxide with hydrogen to make methane. This is what you want to have in mind. At Von Dam, I have a sample from this fluid here, right? That's venting. And I measured CO2 present in the fluid and also methane. So both this side and this side of the equation. And they have a different age based on radioisotopic dating using radiocarbon. The CO2 is relatively young. It still has some radiocarbon. So you can date that CO2 to about 30,000 years. The methane is what we call radiocarbon dead. And so it is older than, um, significantly older than the CO2, too, too old to date using radiocarbon. And if that methane was actually forming from that CO2, you'd expect them to have a more similar age. So that's your first indication. Next thing is, I also took a sample of seawater down at the bottom of the Caribbean. So I know how much CO2 is in seawater, and that's represented with this blue square here. That's a certain amount of CO2. And then when I measure the amount of CO2 in the vent fluids, it matches the amount in seawater. So that CO2 is actually circulated through the whole system without having any CO2 added and any CO2 removed. It's also isotopically similar. If there's any chemists in the crowd, isotopes? No, okay. Don't worry about the isotopes. <laughs> but there are different types of carbon. They have different amounts of neutrons, and so they react differently in chemical processes. Now, isotopes can tell you, um, they could tell you both source and also process. So the isotopes match between the CO2 and the CO2. Okay, so this is actually mysterious, right? CO2 and methane are equally abundant in the system. And so that means this seawater CO2 cannot have produced that methane. The fluid has doubled its carbon content, right? So that means this methane was already present within the system. And this was a, a big surprise. It's not something I saw coming. And so the hypothesis, the best hypothesis we have now, 
is that methane and other hydrocarbons within these systems, they are in fact abiotically formed, but they might instead be sourced from gas-rich inclusions. And so these inclusions are microscopic bubbles of liquid and gas that are trapped within crystals when they form, when they solidify from a, a molten magma. So as minerals, um, as the mineral coalesces, it often traps little pockets of magmatic gas, which is really rich in water and really rich in carbon dioxide. And that water can react with the mineral, which can sometimes be olivine. So you can see where I'm going with this. The water reacts with the inside of the mineral. It can create hydrogen. Now you have hydrogen in the presence of CO2. And so you have the exact same reaction happening, but it's happening on the micro scale in these minerals. Um, these are just micron size, but if you have enough of them and you have a fluid that's circulating through and reacting with the rock, then you could release those hydrocarbons um, up into the fluid and then they're vented here. So the methane formation process is different, actually, than the hydrogen generating process on the, on the downgoing fluid. Those two are not connected. Okay, so now let's take a look at Picard. So Picard is the world's deepest hydrothermal system. It's at a depth of about five kilometers deep. And this is a zoomed in map. The hottest fluids are, are over here. The hottest temperature we measured was 398 degrees Celsius. So hot. And uh, this is a picture here of, of what those vents look like. But what was really exciting to me about this system, other than these, these fluids are interesting, I'm not gonna focus on them today. But instead, there are fluids marked with stars in this environment that range in temperature from 45 degrees Celsius up to 149 degrees Celsius. And this is interesting because it cross-cuts the biotic-abiotic transition zone in terms of temperature. So if you're a microorganism living in this environment, what are the things that you're worried about? Well, one of the first things you're worried about is a temperature limit. And so the temperature limit of life is 122 degrees Celsius. So in some of those fluids, they're too hot to host life. In other ones, they're, they're warm enough, they'd be habitable. So for me, that, as a chemist, this was really exciting because it gives me the opportunity to look at this intermediate temperature state that's very rarely seen and even rare, more rarely sampled. Um, when you have a beautiful black smoker, what are you gonna go for, you know? So I actually like to sample both of those fluids and compare them. And if you're a microbe, another thing that's very important is chemical disequilibria. And, and I, I write that as redox reactive species that provide a source of energy to microbes. And there are a whole bunch of different types of redox reactive species within these systems. There's hydrogen, which we already talked about. There's also hydrogen sulfide. That smells like rotten eggs. I smell at the beach. It's also the smell of success, if you're me. And there's, there are metals, there's methane, and then there's things added from seawater as well, things like oxygen, sulfate, CO2 can either be magnetic or in seawater, um, and uh, nutrients like ammonium and, um, and nitrate. But if you're a microbe, it's very important that all these species don't all chemically re-equilibrate. So if you have perfect system, all these would, would re-equilibrate and there'd be no energy to gain. And so there have to be, it's called kinetic barriers. Those reactions do not happen fast enough um, to re-equilibrate, and so there's still a disequilibria in, in chemical energy, and so microbes take advantage of that in this environment. So 
I also told you I'd talk about um, original life and the types of molecules we're looking for in terms of original life. So this is the molecule methane thiol. It's abbreviated CH3SH, and it's a lot like the compound methanol, if you've heard of that. It's just got a sulfur instead of an oxygen. And methane thiol is central to some origin of life studies, and it's thought to represent a precursor step, which we also call prebiotic geochemistry, to form a more complex molecule called thioester. And thioester is a critical component of the acetyl-CoA um, coenzyme metabolic pathway. And the acetyl-CoA pathway is present in nearly every living organism today. And because it's so universally present, it's thought to be very ancient in origin. And, and so hydrothermal vents could be a system where you have the right ingredients present to make this first step, which is forming the carbon to sulfur bond. Because you have plenty of methane available, you have plenty of hydrogen sulfide available in the right conditions at the right temperatures, you can predict based on, on chemical affinity that you should be able to form methane thiol. But the only problem was there was limited experimental evidence and no previous field-based evidence in the modern system that this compound was forming, that this, this precursor to prebiotic chemistry could form. So along with a team of colleagues, we looked for this compound at the Von Damme system and also at the Picard system and at six other vent fields. And these vent fields ranged widely in their, their other compositions. So they had very different hydrogen contents and very different methane contents and very different sulfur, sulfide contents. And so you would have expected, if this molecule was forming, it should scale proportionally or there should be some kind of predictive ability based on the other chemistry. Does that make sense? And in fact, what you find is a little disappointing, at least initially, all of the vent fields in the hot source fluid, the hottest one in each location, they contain uniformly low methane thiol. We could measure it, but it was similar everywhere despite all the variability in chemistry. And so it doesn't look like this molecule is forming within the system and remaining there. It looks like if it's forming, it's falling back apart. You're splitting that carbon-sulfur bond back apart. But it led to a different kind of discovery. And so if you move away from those really hot systems and, and look about 100 meters over, there are these, these low temperature fluids that I talked about before. And there's this fluid here that's 149 degrees Celsius. Too hot for life, right? And this is conceptually the way I approach this. So I know how much um, of each element is in seawater. And you can plot make these plots versus the magnesium content. So seawater has a lot of magnesium in it. Magnesium's a salt, so it doesn't really react within these, um, within, within these mixing processes. But as seawater circulates through the crust, magnesium is quantitatively removed. It forms clays, clay minerals. So that the source fluids, the hot ones over here, have zero magnesium. So they would plot over on this side of this plot. And then you can put whatever other chemical you're measuring here. So for example, if you were looking at chloride content within the Picard system, this is what you get. You have your hot source fluid, has a slightly different chloride here than seawater, and you have these mixed fluids. So you can add magnesium in one of two ways. You can screw up, take a bad sample, right, and get half seawater and half vent fluid, 
or that mixing could have occurred in the subsurface naturally. So you'll have to take my word for it here, but we can look at my data. Um, but when you take two samples in the same spot, you get virtually the same number, which is good evidence that this is happening naturally in the subsurface. So when you measure chloride, all of the dots lie along the line. So that tells you there's one source fluid, this one, and it's mixing with seawater and forming all these mixed fluids. Okay, so the ultimate source of this was those black smokers 100 meters away. Now, when you look at methane thiol, you see a different story. You see huge enrichments in methane thiol relative to what you would have expected if the source, the really low methane thiol, mixed with seawater. And so these fluids are too hot for viable life, so we know it's not life itself generating it. You see a huge enrichment in methane thiol. We also see very high abundances of methane, ethane, propane, isobutane, and n-butane. And when you compare these, these longer chain ones, with methane, they're actually in, in really high abundances. And this is characteristic of the thermal degradation of biomass, of fresh biomass. And then you also have one more thing, you have a pulse of ammonium as well. So when you, when you make this plot for ammonium, there's also an enrichment in ammonium. Ammonium is a nutrient and it's a vital part of cells. And so if you were decomposing cells, you could conceivably be releasing all of these compounds into the fluid. So this was really exciting, I thought. This was degradation of fresh organic matter. And we have a new type of biomarker on our planet. As far as I know, and you can correct me, methane thiol is always associated with life. And so if you're exploring for life on another planet and you want to use something to be able to discern whether there's life present, I think methane thiol would be worth considering because it has a characteristic spectra. And so all of this has implications for how we might want to design sensors to explore deep oceans on other planetary bodies. So this is Saturn's moon Enceladus. And Enceladus is, is very interesting. At the south pole of Enceladus, there are jets of water ice particles that are erupting into space. This is imagery captured by the Cassini mission. Um, and these water jets are associated with warm fractures at the bottom of the moon. So it's thought that these might be the product of hydrothermal geysers that are shooting water and ice into space. And so here is Jupiter's moon Europa. Europa also has a water ice coating. Uh, and geophysical measurements indicate that this ice is overlying a liquid ocean, which is overlying uh, a, a silicate rock mantle and a core. And as Europa is orbiting Jupiter, Jupiter's gravitational field is pulling on it, and that's likely generating internal heat, which could be driving volcanism. So whenever you have volcanism at the seafloor under a, a liquid water ocean, you could have hydrothermal activity. And so the deepest hydrothermal vents on our planet and the mid-Cayman rise are a very good analog environment so that we know what to look for once we get to these planets. So you might also be thinking another really good place to go would be the Arctic. And so that's where I went this fall. Um, we wanted to know what is the nature of hydrothermal venting at the top of the world. And I really mean the top. Um, so this was our transit. We left from, um, from Trondheim no, Trom Tromso, Tromso, Norway, all the way up to 87 degrees north latitude. So the North Pole's 90, so it's quite far. And we were on the German icebreaker Polarstern, 
uh, at the end of uh, septem September, early October. So the sea ice at 87 North was about a meter thick. So that's why I'm able to stand right on top of the Gackle Ridge, which is one of the slowest spreading centers on Earth. Um, and in order to operate in a place like this, you need a very specialized submarine. We can't use the regular human-occupied submarine or the other types of submersibles like the Jason um, because it would be, you'd probably not have success because of this ice cover in this environment. So we were out with this new prototype. It's called a hybrid ROV, Nereid Under Ice, and it was designed by Woods Hole Oceanographic Institution. So you, know, you could see it here. I think it was coming back or um, going out, but you could see the ice flows here, and, and we're able to break a hole in the ice using the polar stern so that we can launch and recover the vehicle at the end of its dive. And so this was, um, this, the, the goals of this were to understand the geological, geochemical, and biological processes associated with a seamount up here, which is called the Karasik Seamount, and also hydrothermal vents um, along the Gackle Ridge. So I want to show you, if it works, a video here of what it's like to work with this vehicle. So this is, we call it Nui for short, Nereid Under Ice. And this is kind of a, this is always a tense moment <laughs> because you're, you're launching this vehicle and everywhere you look for, you know, 100 kilometers is ice covered. And here it is tooling around on the surface. I'm going to speed it up a little. And one thing that's very striking when you're working in the Arctic is that there's very little life at the surface. Um, I did see one polar bear. But once you get into the water, the, the shallow Arctic is teeming with life. So a lot of these particles you see here are things like copepods, plankton, and things that are living in the high Arctic underneath the ice. And this is some kind of fish. <laughs> I think it's an Arctic cod. Does anyone think it looks like a cod? Yeah. I'm not really, I'm not a fish biologist, but we often get curious animals that are interested in the vehicle because it's um, probably generating heat and it's really bright. All right, so let's go deeper. Speed it up here. So here you wait an hour and the seafloor starts to come into view. And this is what Karasik Seamount looks like. So all of these blobby things here are deep sea sponges. It's like Sponge City, <laughs> which I didn't really expect. And there are a lot of little tubes here, um, yeah, tubes and tube worms living in them. Oops, sorry. I want to show you a little more and see if I can get back to that spot. Okay. Ah. So this is, I think this is the big reward when you get to work in a place like this. It's, we're really the first people to see this place. Um, we did have some towed camera footage, which is when you hang a camera off a wire from the back of the ship, but there's nothing that compares to having a vehicle there. So the image stability is just much, much better. So how about hydrothermal venting? Um, so this actually, this seamount 
we were hoping we'd find hydrothermal activity here, but it turned out we didn't find any evidence for it. Um, but we went a little further north and to the west and found another type of system um, along the Gackle Ridge itself where I was able to measure uh, chemical signals in the water column that indicated that there was in fact an active vent at the seafloor. And, and this is some of these data. This is brand new data um, that's not available yet. And this is methane. So um, you can see here, if you remember back earlier, methane is millimolar in the, in the fluids, and this is nanomolar. So this is many, many orders of magnitude weaker, but that's because it's diluted with seawater. It's like 10,000 times diluted. But we have chemical sensors and, and instruments that are able to detect that signal. And so each of these colors is a different profile, chemical profile through the water column. And so this is meters below surface, below the ship, 2,000 meters, so two kilometers. And you could see from the different colors that we were variably successful, right? This, this blue one here was a big success. We were able to collect a sample here, which has the highest component of that, that source fluid, that, that, that really hot fluid. And what was really interesting is this is the hydrogen measurement on those same fluids, and the methane and the hydrogen in this sample are equi-concentrated, equi right? Equal amount of methane and hydrogen. And we were also able to measure the isotopic composition of this methane. And all of those things taken together indicate that this is a serpentinizing system. We've got another clear serpentinizing system underneath an ice-covered ocean. So this is a really good analog for what we're gonna need to be able to do on another planet or another, another moon. Um, and so using these kinds of data and this kind of approach, we can predict the nature of the source fluid and also the fate of this chemistry. How is it supporting life throughout the whole Arctic Ocean? How far does this plume go? And, and so what's happening in the ocean and is this signal getting trapped within the ice? So these are some of the questions we were trying to evaluate. And the bad news is the hydrothermal vent is somewhere down here on the seafloor. This is 3,100 meters, and the depth range for the submarine is 2,000 meters. This is the cutoff. <laughs> so I was telling you earlier that challenges drive technological advance, right? And so we can go back. We have a huge amount of information now about where this is located. We were within 200 meters of where that is, and this has happened before. <laughs> it's not the first time. So we need higher depth capacity on that submersible. Okay, so I just wanted to summarize what I've told you today. First one was that exploration creates challenges. It drives technological and energy, energy, engineering innovation. And so um, this is part of the way that, um, part of the partnership with NASA on these projects is to understand the autonomy versus the human intervention that's needed in a system like this. And I also showed you that abiotic synthesis of methane and other hydrocarbons is occurring within these systems, but it's occurring over much longer timescales than people thought before. It's not actually a product of the circulation, but it's forming within the rocks themselves, and it's released by circulating fluids. And then exploring these natural systems gives an insight and it reveals potential new biomarkers for life and indications of a mysterious subsea floor community. Um, and so we can use chemical clues within these fluids to reveal the nature of that biosphere. So I wanted to leave you just with a few questions that I think about a lot. One of the hardest things about this environment is time. 
What are the time scales that this fluid is circulating through the crust? Are the time scales different in different locations? And is that going to have an influence on what chemistry can happen in each location? We also clearly need to understand better the nature of organic components within the rock itself, because this seems to be a major source of organic molecules within these systems. I also have a lot of questions about that biomass. Um, and could you actually look for certain different types of chemical energy sources or types of nutrients and eventually gain a predictive capacity to be able to say who might live there and what might they be doing? And of course, this work is really collaborative. Um, these ships carry science teams of 20 to 50 people. And so I have a lot of collaborators to thank for help on this work and a lot of field assistance from many different ships and many different submersibles and my funding sources um, and a, a team of geochemists as well. So with that, thank you very much for your attention. Thank you.